getting started here, if you'll open up your Bibles to Luke 15. I was just thinking, I, hearing about all the anniversaries and congratulations, I had a patient uh, that actually celebrated a 70th wedding anniversary. And we had only been married some 30 years, so we were beginners. And I said, uh, tell me how you do it. And he said, well, whenever we were going to have an argument or I sensed we were going to have an argument, I would go for a walk outdoors. Okay, I mean, I kind of get that, but how did that help? And he said, well, I've, I've mostly led an outdoor life. So. <laughs> I'm not saying that's why Pastor John had to have a hip replacement. <laughs> Where's Carrie? I'm sorry for that, Carrie. (laughs) All right. You remember a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the parable of the lost sheep. And today we're going to look at the companion parable, that of the last lost coin. Remember now that the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, what we call the, the prodigal, is actually a trilogy. It's meant to be together, not three unrelated stories. So let's start with prayer, and then we'll dig into these. I think it's about 77 words. Lord Jesus, we pause in all that occupies our minds to be quiet and to be mindful of you, our great King, and of what you have done for us. Lord, help us to understand more deeply what you teach in this this little parable, for it is life-changing. Once understood, our only response is to do exactly what we're doing now, to worship you and to give unending thanks for what you have done for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have done for us what no other has ever done in all of recorded history. We were lost. And you sought each and every one of us here. We were found and you saved us. We were dead in spirit and now possess eternal life. With quiet hearts, attentive minds, and glad hearts, we worship you. Amen. All right. So let's uh, look at uh, Luke 15, verses 8 to 10. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so, I tell you, there is Joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God abides forever. Think of it. God's word breathed out for us in Scripture will never, regardless of circumstance, ever change. God has literally breathed this out for us. It is I could stop right there and say we have worshipped our great God. Well, when I was young, I got lost at Knott's Berry Farm in California. 
I remember being terrified. It was the first time that I had been lost. And I was now separated from my family. Fortunately, my father found me. I was even more terrified when, unbeknownst to me one Christmas, when we were at a shopping mall in Kansas, a family member wandered off with my youngest son, just past any sight line that I had. I looked around, as I think any parent would, terrified that my son was lost in a busy mall full of strangers. Everything focused down on one thought, find my son. Whatever it took, whatever the cost, I was going to find him. And find him I did. And what do you think I experienced? Joy and rejoicing. If that had happened when he was a teenager, (laughs) and I called over the other family members who rejoiced with me. So it sort of begs the question, what are you worth? What is your spouse worth? Your grandchild, your own child. Can you place a value on life? And I'm serious about this. What is the value of a life? As physicians, we're sometimes confronted with this, and we make decisions on cost-effectiveness based on what the cost of a life is. I won't tell you because I've always thought it's depressingly low. (laughs) But in our text today, Jesus answers that very question and in the process weaves together a coherent whole and life-changing message, bringing together concepts of being lost, being found, of royal worth, of joy, and of unfathomable love, which we're going to see. But first, a brief refresher. Remember that the events in Luke are all happening as he travels to Jerusalem, where he knows he's going to be crucified. The parable of the lost sheep, lost coin, and lost son all appear in this section. And what many miss, as I've said, is that this is a connected trilogy, a connected whole. Think about it. In the parable of the lost sheep, what's lost? One out of a hundred. In the lost coin, what's lost? One out of ten. And the lost son, what's lost? One out of one. Do you see the progression? Why one builds on another? It gives me chills. I'd like to say the hair on my neck stands up, but that would be a lie. (laughs) The odds grow higher, and what is lost grows more and more valuable, making the loss even greater. And the tension through these three parables grows. So I want to make five major points here and then apply this parable to us. The first requires that we start at the beginning, back up to Luke 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So... He told them this parable. You have to understand what's happening here. In the Middle East, to this very day, to receive someone and invite him to eat or drink with you is to affirm their wealth. To indicate their worth, not wealth, their worth. To indicate your value to them. Just a few years ago, Gene and I were in Turkey. And it's an odd thing, I know, but I collect rugs. 
and I wanted a hand-woven Turkish rug. Eventually, I found my rug. It does not fly. I tried. As we got to the point where the store owner that we were going to do business with realized, this American's serious. He's going to buy a rug. Everything stopped. It's like a record going, and you hear that scratch, and it stops. And for the next two hours, okay, for a type A person like me, two hours sitting in this store while we had tea and sweets and talked. It's tradition. And so the Pharisees were grumbling because they're accusing Jesus of literally affirming the worth of sinners. Can you imagine? Liars, cheats, thieves, prostitutes, by virtue of eating with them and of, quote, receiving them. As one commentator wrote, to receive and eat with a man was an offer of, here clearly now, an offer of peace, trust, brotherhood, and forgiveness. In short, sharing a table meant sharing life. Think of the meaning of this. And what just happened. This is a world-shaking truth. It's hard to even fully grasp this. Let me just say it one more time. To receive and eat with a man was an offer of peace, of trust, brotherhood, and forgiveness. Sharing your table, receiving a sinner and eating with them meant sharing life. And I thought about that and I said, how many times have I read this? How many times have I gone by this? Is this not the very heart and root of salvation? This is the very definition of Christ's ministry. His his rescue plan for humanity. He came to receive us. To offer peace, trust, brotherhood and forgiveness. In short, he came to share life with us. Eternal life in this case. To us, the very sinners the Pharisees are grumbling about. They continue to accuse him. This man receives sinners and he eats with them. This is shocking in their and maybe even in our upside down world. It's not Jesus that's upside down here, right? It's, it's us. He's spending his time with the lowest of society. To the Pharisees, eating and spending time with sinners was to condone their behavior. And therefore, this implied that somehow Jesus himself was of low moral character. But do you see the shocking irony here? The Pharisees were right. Jesus received and ate with sinners. In fact, everyone Jesus ever sat down with and ate with was a sinner, including the Pharisees and the scribes. They indicted themselves. And praise God and thank God that He does receive us. Absent this, there's no redemption. Receiving sinners is the critical and necessary element of salvation. That Christ did come, that He did receive us, that He did invite us into relationship with Him, and that He did offer life. I feel like I could stop here. I've said it once already. Let us meditate the rest of our time together on this single sentence from Scripture. 
And we could probably never plumb the depth and the wonder of it. But I'm going to try. Now the second point. Let's look at the first three words of verse 8. Just the first three words. Or what woman? Remember who is Jesus talking to? A group of grumbling Pharisees and scribes who were all men. They were all men. In a society where women had no worth, they were literally treated and thought of as property. Where I work, there are a lot of Middle Easterners that, that come, and they're, of course, in their traditional dress. And you'll see the men walking, and the women are 15 feet behind. And they do not talk. And everything is covered except a little slip. That tradition remains in that society. Well, this is a complete shock and surprise that Jesus is telling a story where the main character is a woman. Why does Jesus specifically make the person in this parable a woman? And this is, this is interesting. Remember, the first parable is about a shepherd, a man who does the searching. The third parable is about a man, a father who does the searching. Here we have a woman who does the searching. What's going on? What's the point being made? And you might have already guessed. Commentators suggest two primary interpretations. First, it shows Christ's equal care and love for women as for men in a society where that is not the case. Again, it's a social idea that may have been as shocking in that culture as if I stood up and said to you, you know what? Fish have as much worth as human beings. By the way, throughout the book of Luke, if you, if you read through the book, Jesus does this repeatedly. He pairs a story or a point about a man with one centered on a woman. And he does that over and over again. To the careful reader, Jesus is doing exactly what he came to do. He is reshaping culture. He's showing us the right way instead of the upside down way that we have uh, done things. The second and likely more important thing Jesus is doing is pointing to the Trinity. Now, there's some speculation, and I'm about to tread where angels even fear to tread. Don't worry, I'm not going progressive liberal here, but I just want to float an idea and several commentators have done this, so I, I think I'm in good shape here. The first parable, as I said, is about a good shepherd who searches for the lost, and that's God the Son, the shepherd. Third parable is about a father, God the Father. The middle parable is about a woman, God the Holy Spirit. Notably, the woman must do what? Light her lamp. Commentators have speculated that this is an allusion to the possible idea of the Holy Spirit lighting our and the church's way. And even today in our culture, this, this might surprise us a little bit to think of God the Holy Spirit as a, a woman or of having feminine qualities. But think about it. Is God male? I'm looking for heads going this way or this way. Is God male? Well, of course not. Is he female? 
Of course not. Let's look at Westminster Shorter Catechism, Catechism Question 4. Ask, what is God? And the, the answer is, God is spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in being. Wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. He's spirit. He doesn't have physical parts. He could if he wanted to, but he doesn't. Now, it's true that most often God is portrayed in the masculine. In our, uh, I caught it in our, our first hymn that we sang, uh, that God, like a woman, like a mother, extends her hand to us. But Scripture also portrays God with feminine qualities. Let's look at Isaiah 66:13, As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. Earlier in Luke 13:34, and you know this one well, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a mother hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. In other words, God's compassion is like a mother's love. So God as spirit demonstrates qualities of all of us. Does that surprise us? We are made in the imago Dei, right? We are made in God's image, whether we are male or female. And those are the two divisions. Let me be clear. The third point is the coin itself. We are specifically told it's a silver coin, a silver coin worth about a day's wage. So in this culture, ten coins put together in the context of a, of a peasant woman worn on, was worn on a necklace and represented her dowry, in essence. To have one missing would have, number one, been immediately noticeable, and number two, uh, degraded the beauty, if you will, of the necklace, just like we are unlovely as lost sinners. The coin was extremely valuable to a peasant woman, making the parallel point of our own value in God's eyes. Note that even though the coin was lost, who did it still belong to? Its owner. The coin was lost. But it was still owned by the owner. In the same way, we belong to the one in whose image we are made. We are owned by God the Father, our maker. Even when we're lost, we still belong to God. We are a prized possession to him who fashioned us. Remember Psalm 139 a, a much, and, and verse 13, a much beloved piece of scripture. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Like the point we discussed in the parable of the lost sheep, the same point must be made of the lost coin. What can the coin do to find itself? Well, about as much as the sheep could do to find itself, which was zero, nada, nothing. A coin cannot find itself. And that's an important principle here in Scripture. We can't find ourselves either. We cannot find our own way. We cannot, despite the song, make our own way. When that time comes and the sheep and the goats are, are uh, separated, 
think if you incline your ear toward the goats, you're going to hear him singing, I did it my way. Okay? The same truth is evident throughout Scripture of those who are lost without God. They cannot find themselves. Oh, if it could be true, many people think, not realizing the gift of God's grace here. Once lost, we remain forever lost until we're found by God through the work of who? The Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can rescue men and women who without God are as lifeless and lost as the coin. The fourth point concerns the search for the coin. And I'm indebted to Philip Ryken and, and his commentary in particular. He makes the point, we may be helplessly lost, but we are never, brothers and sisters, hopelessly lost. Many of you, I know, because Gene and I have experienced the same thing, where you pray and pray and pray for a family member, a friend, as somebody I've worked with, I have prayed with for 34 years and no real movement. We may be helplessly lost, but nobody is ever hopelessly lost. The point here is that Jesus never gives up searching for us in our lost state. Revelation 3.20 reminds us, Behold, I Stand at the door and knock and knock and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and here we are back to our parable. Eat with him and he with me. Remember how diligently the good shepherd searched for his lost sheep or how the father stood every day looking toward the horizon for his lost son. Now we have a woman lighting a lamp and the text tells us that she diligently, the idea is relentlessly, searches for this coin. She sweeps the floor. She lights a lamp. What a beautiful picture, I think, as I read this, of how Christ diligently searches for us. Some have used, and I know it's kind of an old-time term, have, have you heard the idea of the hound of heaven pursuing you? Well, what does Scripture say? Luke 19.10 says, and it says it plainly, For the Son of Man came to, and here it is, seek and save the lost. Even now, Jesus is searching, finding men and women and boys and girls who are His. It's a, it's a sad thing that not everybody is His, but He's diligently searching for those who are His. They are of inestimable value than any coin could ever be. And he will indeed find every lost sheep, every lost coin, and every lost son that belongs to him. Philip Ryken relates this story from Anne Lamont, who describes this process of being found. And I, I thought it was good, so I'll read it to you. She said, Jesus was relentless. I didn't experience him so much as the hound of heaven, as the old description would have it but as the alley cat of heaven who seemed to believe that if he just kept showing up, mewing outside my door, I'd eventually open it and give him a bowl of milk. Well, I resisted as long as I could, but he warmed me out. He won. 
I was tired and vulnerable, and he won. Then, when I was dozing, tiny lost kitten that I was, he picked me up like a mother cat by the scruff of my neck and deposited me in a little church. And that's where I was when I came to. And then I came to believe. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the reality so many in this room have experienced? My last point concerns the last two verses of our passage and revolves around two words, joy and rejoicing. And verse 9 and 10. And when she has found the coin, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin. Here she takes um, responsibility, unlike the uh, lost sheep, that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The simple point is that when we're found by Jesus, we universally experience joy. Do you remember that? Do you remember the joy you felt, the burden that lifted off your shoulders, the surety that you now had eternal life, joy at no longer being lost, of now feeling whole, of understanding your inestimable worth to Christ. And that joy is eternal. Once found, you can never be lost. You will never experience the sense of being lost. Now I grant you, there may be times when you feel distant, and maybe the word we would use is lost, but he will never, ever, under any circumstance, not know where you are. My wife and I are training to, at the end of this month, hike part of the Appalachian Trail. So we're doing five to eight mile hikes. And we were walking along, and I started it, and she continued it. I said, oh, that gecko. God knows he moved from point A to B. And Gene says, and he knows why he did it. And we just kept doing that all, all along. He knows that leaf just moved. <clears throat> you were lost, but now you're found. Like the beautiful lyric in Amazing Grace, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. So great rejoicing ensued. The woman in the parable called together her friends and and said, Rejoice with me, I found the coin I lost. And just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over this one sinner who repents. And by the way, this parable ends in the same way that the parable of the lost sheep ended, with that very same sentence to emphasize the joy. And I kind of visualize it as all the heavenly hosts up there who never tire of rejoicing that another sinner has come to Christ. I'm going to finish with some important applications I don't want to get lost. Number one, we're all made in the image of God. Whose image was stamped on the silver coin that was lost? Caesar's. Caesar owned. The coin. The coin was made in his image. Who do you belong to? 
Jesus is making the point here that each of us, women included, are made in his image. That they are as valuable and important to Jesus as men or children or the aged or those with any of a variety of limitations. There is no exception to this. Despite a culture trying to tell you that some are worth more than others. It's a lie. And scripture tells us so. Someone who mistreats a woman or a child or an elderly person mistreats the very image of God. The coin that is you is made of precious material, of something worth more than silver and gold. You are made and fashioned to be the very image of God. Number two, Jesus spent his time with sinners. And as we noted, the irony, everyone he came into contact with was a sinner. You and me included. He didn't come for the righteous. So he had a big job because it turned out there are no righteous here on earth. He came for the likes of you and me. Rebellious traitors who committed high treason against the king of heaven himself. I want, I want to just restate it again because in the dark moments, the tendency is to forget this or to forget about it for maybe people you love. You've been found. It is a great privilege and you and I didn't deserve it. You were granted the privilege of being found, though in fact, you and I did everything we could to prevent being found. We were not just lost sheep. As he came closer, more often than not, we did what? We ran further into the gully. But now that you've been found, do you know what our job is? To be part of the search party to find other lost sheep and coins and to point the way. We can't save them. That's not what our job is, but our job is to be part of the search party and to point the way so that others can experience the same profound relief of being plucked out of the ocean we were drowning in. How could you not point the way in the darkness to the lifeboat? for others who are drowning and lost and who in their own hearts are crying out. Third, think about how you felt when somebody important to you finally, after years of praying, and I hope you've had the joy of that, came to know and love Jesus. Probably you would do what I did, uncontrollably cry tears of profound joy. And that, beloved, is exactly what Scripture says happens every day. As lost sinners, people otherwise spiritually lifeless and doomed, came to be found, rescued, and saved. My point is a simple one. Jesus is looking for lost sinners. There's one other point I wanted to make here, and that is this. I spent a lot of time on the first three words of this passage. But I want to mention that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones took 13 years 
to preach through the book of Romans to his congregation. So I promise you, I will finish somewhere between 30 minutes and 13 years from now. (laughs) Now you're not sure whether to laugh or cry. Me either. (laughs) My point here is a simple one. Jesus is looking for lost sinners. He's using the light of the Holy Spirit. And he's searching diligently for each and every lost sinner who belongs to him. And when he does find you or your friend or your family member, all the hosts of heaven, all who were saved, and Jesus himself will rejoice. Let me just turn back to Ezekiel. Rachel reads scripture so beautifully. I could just sit here all Lord's Day and listen to you read scripture, Rachel. And she read from Ezekiel 34:11, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. He goes on. I'm going to skip around a little bit here. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. Does that describe any of you before you were found? It describes me. And then at the very end of 34, and you, he says, are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. You matter so much more than any coin that could be lost. Jesus' attention is diligently focused on rescuing us. And I'll end here with what was written in John 18:9. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. Amen? Accept being found and let the rejoicing begin. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. That you have so diligently lost such that you are able to make an eternal promise that you will not lose one, not even one lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. An indication of our worth to you. Thank you, Lord, that you found us, that you rejoice over us and that we will literally have life eternal together with you. Thank you, Lord, for your word that teaches us this. Touch each one here, Lord, each of the dear ones here, with the certainty of being found and never, ever being lost. Amen. Can we stand and we will sing Blessed Assurance. Thank you. I couldn't remember it.
reminder that if uh, if you need prayer for anything, please come up afterwards and we'll have some elders here to pray with you. And one other thing, and I, it's on the tip of my tongue. Uh, now that's your line. <laughs> so, okay, we'll, we'll just wait here until I remember what that was. <laughs> Uh, oh, yeah, I know. Quartet practice right afterwards. I am so sorry. Great. If, if you wondered why I was looking at my watch, I thought, now, maybe it was just me. I got excited about this passage. Did we not worship and praise God? I could put a metric on it. As we were singing, we got up to 90 decibels. <laughs> All right. Receive the benediction, if you will, from Psalm 91. For those who hold fast to the Lord, most high in love. May he deliver you and protect you. When you call to him, may he answer you, be with you, rescue you, and honor you. And with long life, may he satisfy you and show you his salvation. Go now, each of you, into your mission field, rejoicing at having been found, and now part of the rescue party, that points the way to others, remembering always that we live Coram Deo before the very face of God. God bless each and every one of you. Thank you.